Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, and I am joined today by Greg Potter once again. Uh, and I'm very excited to have Greg back on the show. It's always a really good time talking with Greg and kind of picking at his brain. How are things over on your end, Greg? Because yeah, we're in a bit of a, a strange time. But we're just saying how our lives haven't maybe changed as much as a lot of other people's, which I guess we're fortunate for. Yeah, to be honest, things are fine here. Got a beautiful sunny day clear skies and by the seaside which is where i like to be so no complaints whatsoever awesome so yeah the sun is particularly nice having the sun at the moment i know i've had some people who have had like snow and that's where their gym kits outside now and they're, they're having to try and train in the snow and things so it <laughs> feels very hardcore uh, but today we're going to be talking about uh, Greg's a great a great topic for Greg, which is all things sleep, as hopefully many of you have already listened to the episodes that we've had on with Greg. And if you haven't, definitely check those ones out. He has a PhD in sleep uh, and knows a lot about this subject. So we'll be delving into some of that. And one question that actually has come on my mind many times, uh, has cropped up with my clients a lot of the time and actually came up on our membership site very recently. And I think I've been asked it by multiple people because I think it's something that maybe physique competitors and people who pursue this and maybe um, have different things going on suffer from it more. And that is like essentially waking up in the night and needing to piss more than what feels reasonable. Uh, I know at the peak of my uh, like contest prep, I may have hit maybe six times as like a record waking up and peeing not necessarily saying every time was like I was needing to pee but I just would and then I guess for me as an average right now just taking me as an example I maybe wake up one to two times uh, and then go to the bathroom as well and yeah essentially a lot of people have said how can they deal with this because it's impacting their sleep quality and I don't know if yeah there's anything we can do as individuals to reduce the impact of that. In short, I think there are some things that people can do, but I'll preface this by saying two things. One is that this is not an area of my expertise and I haven't kept a very close eye on the literature recently. So I'll just go with what I already know. But then second, a lot of people wake up in the night and pee out of habit more than anything else. So it's important to make that distinction between peeing out of habit and peeing out of necessity. Regarding peeing out of necessity, this can really relate to two different things. So one is what's called global polyuria. So that's increased peeing, but it occurs throughout the day. It's not just during the nighttime specifically. And lots of things can lead to that. So things like diabetes mellitus or diabetes insipidus, or simply consuming more water or more fluids than are necessary, which is called polydipsia. And sometimes that's just psychogenic. People just choose to do so. So in those instances, it's really a question of moderating fluid intake if the person has that type of psychogenic polydipsia. If it's a case of somebody having diabetes, then focusing on treating that is going to be the first port of call. But if we're speaking about nocturnal polyuria, so increased peeing during the nighttime specifically, then first that could be due to lots of different things again. So for example, in some people they'll have a reduced bladder capacity. In men as they age, it's quite common for people to be more likely to experience benign prostatic hyperplasia. 
and that can reduce bladder capacity which can lead them to pee more during the night and there seem to be some sex differences in the likelihood that people need to pee at night interestingly among young people if anything it seems to be more problematic among women but as people age it becomes more problematic among men and for people of our age Steve maybe 20% of people have nocturia and it tends to be underdiagnosed and then by the age of 60 or so that might increase to something like 60% of people and Anyway, regarding some other reasons that could contribute to somebody's waking up to pee at night, another would be dysregulation in the system that regulates fluid balance. So specifically, what tends to happen is that as somebody becomes, as somebody undergoes dehydration, which leads to hypohydration or an increase in the osmolality of the plasma, that will signal back to parts of the brain called the hypothalamus, where there are receptors for osmolality. And then that part of the brain will signal to another part of the brain called the posterior pituitary, which will produce a hormone called arginine vasopressin, which will then act on the kidneys to increase water uptake, which would help prevent peeing during the night. And interestingly, if you look at people, then what should happen is there's this diurnal or about 24 hour long rhythm in arginine vasopressin such that it should be highest at night and in people who wake up to pee at night what can happen is that this 24 hour rhythm can flatten and therefore they don't produce as much arginine vasopressin at night and their kidneys don't reabsorb as much water so they have to pee more so dysregulation in that axis can be another contributing factor and Long story short, the reason for different people's nocturia will vary depending on the individual, of course. So it's really hard giving recommendations in this context. And I think if we rule out that it's simply a question of people consuming too much fluid, then people need to go and see a medical professional to try and get to the root of the problem. And the diagnosis of this will likely involve a few different things. So one will simply relate to typically over the space of three days or so, recording the frequency of nocturnal urination and also the volume of nocturnal urination. And the cutoffs for what constitutes nocturia differ depending on things like age. But then also, I should probably say that there isn't perfect consensus regarding what the appropriate cutoffs are so some cutoffs relate to body mass some relate to the amount that's produced per hour for example there are different ways of cutting off what constitutes nocturia but anyway another part of the assessment will relate to how waking up to pee relates to quality of life in general and this is important to solve because of course if people wake up to pee then it disrupts their sleep and it tends to coincide with increased risk of various different problems including things like diabetes and some of that's probably mediated through the effects on disrupting sleep but maybe there are some other things going on 
and the treatments for it will depend on the specific cause of the nocturia. So, for example, in some people, it might be appropriate to take desmopressin, which is a synthetic form of the hormone arginine vasopressin. But when possible, of course, I'd rather not have people take drugs. And if somebody's got benign prostatic hyperplasia, then they'll need to address that. And it could be due to medications too. So some people take diuretic medications, which will tend to exacerbate this problem. And you mentioned that you tend to experience worse during contest prep. Why that's the case, I'm not sure. I could probably speculate as to why that might be the case, but I hadn't thought about it enough to give you what I think is a coherent answer. But it could relate to some abnormalities in your body's clock and how that regulates your fluid balance. It might relate to stress hormone and stress hormones and the hormonal axis that influences that. But also people might just sleep more lightly during contest prep. Maybe, for example, their training loads are very high, their energy availability is quite low, so their bodies are relatively amped up and are keen to go out and seek food. And when they're sleeping lightly, that leads them to spend more time awake at night and then people just get in the habit of getting up to go and pee. So I, I'm sorry that that probably wasn't a very helpful answer, but to cut to the chase, I think people should just moderate their fluid intake as a first port of call, do the things that they should be doing to positively influence the regulation of their body's clocks, which we'll touch on when we speak about sleep specifically, but which we've also spoken about a bit before. And if those things don't address the problem, then it's probably time to go and see your doctor. I know that at the moment it's going to be tricky doing that, just given the pandemic and whatnot. But when the opportunity arises, I'd say get in touch with that person. I You say that was maybe not a satisfying answer, but it was the answer needed. Uh, so I think actually really helpful because... Yeah, for at least for as me as a practitioner, when I have clients doing this, my first port of call is like you say, moderating fluid intake, making people aware that they shouldn't be overhydrating. People are very, I think in the fitness industry, especially they're kind of very conscious of drinking enough to the point of which I think maybe some people maybe overhydrate or overdo it. And in relation to dieting, at least maybe in contest prep specifically, but just dieting in general, I think I have a tendency and I think people maybe have a tendency to try and compensate by drinking more when they're hungry. So they just try and fill their stomach, maybe drinking. It's very easy to drink too much of like diet drinks, for example, because that kind of surpasses <laughs> your hydration needs and just fulfilling the fact that something tastes sweet and tasty. So, mm. um, and then like you said, past ma managing actual good hydration there's not much you can do outside of seeking medical help and i think that is a nice actual answer for people to have and be aware that there may be people struggling like you said it's really underdiagnosed. so and there may be people who actually have problems that they're not seeing getting fixed and they're just they don't know what to do and actually they may think that it's not something to take to a doctor but it very may well be so i think your answer there is really helpful in that regard actually good stuff and then in terms of yeah what other thing, things i've always come to in contest prep is like thinking the stress and like you're just ravenously hungry all the time the body wants to get up and eat and it becomes habitual i find i end up waking up at the same time in the night to go and pee and it's like my and it's interesting i was going to ask about diagnosis of it 
and you mentioned that it could be related to quantity of how much you're peeing and a lot of the time it's barely anything like if that was during the day you wouldn't even worry about going to the toilet because you're uh, uh, it's become a habit just go to the toilet so i think at least for the majority of cases i've seen it's like overdoing fluids and i just one question i had for you greg is mm-hmm. do you think maybe people trying to bias hydrating earlier in the day and tapering off towards the evening is a good idea is there any any one kind of ideas about maybe capping fluids by a certain time before bed or avoiding gulping down lots of fluids right before bed yeah as a generic rule of thumb i normally suggest that people restrict their fluid intake after the final meal of the day and i generally suggest that people stop consuming any calorie containing items at least two hours before bedtime so i'd certainly start there regarding the temporal distribution of fluid intake during the day otherwise i would say yes you could front load fluid intake but it should probably also relate to things like the timing of your exercise and as we touched on in the last podcast that we did it probably makes sense for strength and power athletes if they're training once a day to train in the late biological afternoon so if they're losing a fair bit of fluid around then then it might make sense to consume some of their fluid around then too so i wouldn't necessarily say front load it okay I don't know. This is probably maybe out of scope of this and maybe out of scope of what you're comfortable answering. But something I've gone by as like a rule of thumb in terms of hydration is making sure to maybe clear, uh, sorry, pee clear like three, five times in a day, like somewhat clear, not maybe crystal clear, but just not having like any tinge of too much yellow. Do you have any rules of thumb for people staying hydrated or is there anything that you know of that you can specifically use to make sure that you're well hydrated? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't looked at this stuff since my undergrad, which I finished in 2012. So <laughs> just a while. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not not fully up to date on that stuff. But my undergrad was in sport and exercise science, and I know that a lot of professionals in sport and exercise science use urine charts, which will show these different colours of urines although the color of your urine depends on things like what you're eating too if you consume lots of beetroot then it'll probably yeah. come out purple so i wouldn't go by the color alone because there are various different things that can confound that but you can look up those charts as a starting point i think that some companies out there will have them i believe that some of the sports science institutes used to have them last time i checked like gatorade and that might be a starting point but I don't have one off the top of my head to point people towards, but actually just to close a thought from earlier, you mentioned that during contest prep, you might wake up and just urinate a small amount. And I think a lot of that does relate to sleep being more shallow at that time. Many of us will probably remember what it was like being a kid and waking up in the morning, having not woken up at all at night and then having one giant pee that lasted about three minutes. (laughs) And some of that is probably a product of how deep sleep was then and and the high quality of that sleep. And for that reason, when people focus on improving their sleep, it's likely that their nocturia will improve in lockstep with those improvements too. So for lots of those people who are experiencing difficulties during contest prep, focusing on improving their sleep will probably also reduce their problems of being at night fantastic 
yeah, I think it's quite easy to get into a lot of bad habits um, that impact sleep. Like we talked about last time, caffeine use, for example. Um, I think a lot of people end up overdoing that. So I yeah, think and caffeine, right. caffeine is a diuretic too. It's a, it's a mild diuretic, but it's an example of one of the many things that people might do that will influence diuresis. Yeah. As is alcohol, I suspect, I suspect that most of the people listening to this will not be very big alcohol consumers. But interestingly, during this pandemic, alcohol consumption has, of course, increased nationwide and probably globally too. So maybe it's more of a problem at the moment than it has otherwise been. And actually that leads us, it's a really nice uh, ed kind of way into the next part of this podcast, which was specifically managing sleep during this pandemic that we have at the moment, because it's certainly unique. It's not something many people will uh, well, in the future, we'll ever have to go through probably, or we hope, uh, and but it's something all of us are going through right now. And uh, I'd love to hear, yeah, any kind of bits of advice for people trying to manage their sleep at this period of time specifically. This might be the longest answer that <laughs> you've ever experienced on this podcast, Steve. So let me know if, if you don't want me to just go off on one. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. I think you'll 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 be um I don't know if you know Lyle McDonald, but you'll be challenging Lyle because he actually has some really good long answers on here. So yeah, like, I, I like to see you beat him. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I remember reading lots of Lyle stuff when I was in my teens, actually. I first became very interested in that stuff when I was about 12 or 13. And was it Body Recomposition, his yeah. website? I spent loads of time on that. really enjoyed reading his stuff. So anyway, I'll, I'll try and compete with Lyle. I'm already extending my answer by prattling <laughs> at the moment, which is great. Okay, so again, to preface this answer, I want to make it clear that there's the opportunity at the moment for people's sleep to improve. Many people, especially people who work office-based jobs, at the moment have more control over their sleep schedules than they otherwise would. And they don't have to wake up so early in the morning to catch public transport to work, for example. And for that reason, it may be that people can sleep in closer alignment with their chronotypes. So the night owls of the world might be able to go to bed at the same time, but wake up a little bit later and thereby get slightly more complete sleep than they were getting previously. So that's one factor. But then also, I think a lot of us have more regular schedules at the moment than we previously did, because it's not like we can go and see our friends in the evening or whatever. So that opportunity for increased regularity is also conducive to sleeping well. But with that said, I think a lot of people are experiencing sleep difficulties at the moment. And I'm going to assume that lots of people are experiencing transient insomnia, probably in part related to stress at the moment. But there are questionnaires that people can go to out there to work out whether it's likely that they have sleep problems. One of those, for example, is the SLEEP50 questionnaire, SLEEP in all caps, and then hyphen, and then five zero. And 
the nice thing about that particular questionnaire is that it includes questions for all of the major categories of sleep disorders and it's quite easy to score so that might be a useful starting point for some people anyway regarding insomnia insomnia is basically characterized by a daytime dysfunction so for example difficulty concentrating or impaired mood plus difficulty falling asleep staying asleep feeling like sleep was refreshing or difficulty arising from waking up earlier than is ideal or than you would like and regarding <clears throat> all sleep problems the first port of call is monitoring your sleep and monitoring some behaviors related to your sleep and to that end i generally suggest that people keep a sleep diary for a couple of weeks there are lots of different sleep diaries that are available out there one that i like is the consensus sleep diary and there are online versions of that i think one is available at the bettersleepproject.com and if people begin by recording their sleep for at least a week but preferably two weeks then they can establish their sleep at baseline and after that they can work out whether what they're doing to improve their sleep is having an effect or not now regarding insomnia of course the normal sleep hygiene principles apply and i know that we've discussed these previously so i won't dwell on them too much but these are necessary but probably not sufficient to treat insomnia what are some of these things they are of course things like light exposure temperature of the bedroom caffeine intake alcohol consumption when you consume food relative to your sleep use of devices around sleep timing of medication which you want to regularize all those different factors exercise and i think a few of them at the moment are probably more likely to be problematic than they otherwise would have been so as i mentioned previously i think that alcohol intake is one of those i think a lot of people are more sedentary at the moment than they previously would have been and when you take sedentary people and you increase their physical activity through structured exercise training they tend to fall asleep faster sleep slightly longer experience slightly higher quality sleep and experience all the attendant benefits that come with that so doing things to build physical activity in your day such as doing some calisthenics between meals can be a really useful strategy for those people i think a lot of people are spending a bit less time outdoors than they otherwise would have been steve i know that you live in southwest london and it's a bit of a concrete monstrosity around that area yeah you probably don't spend too much time outside at the moment the nice thing is that it's summer here or it's approaching summer it's not summer it's april what am i talking about but it's spring and the sun is coming out it feels like summer today because it's nice yeah. and a lot of people therefore will be spending more time outside than they otherwise would have been but if you are stuck indoors and you're in a very urban area where there's lots of concrete and there aren't many green spaces so you can't spend much time outside then a light therapy lamp i think can be useful at the moment we've mentioned that previously but get one that emits at least 10,000 lux use it for half an hour or so each day for most people using that in the first half of the waking day 
makes a lot of sense, certainly for young people. So that would be a simple strategy that people can use. And then I think, of course, people are more stressed at the moment than they otherwise would have been. And that can relate to lots of different things. So one of those things, for example, is being bombarded with bad news about the pandemic. And I think that it makes a lot of sense to carefully curate your news diet at the moment and to limit your exposure to the news within the first half of the waking day if possible. And if you're struggling with spending lots of time scrolling through the BBC live COVID-19 feed at the moment, then you can always use website blocking apps. So for example, I use self-control on my Mac, which is handy for that purpose. So that's one of them. Another is of course that a lot of people know people who have been affected by the pandemic and there's not too much that you can do about that i don't think other than speak to your loved ones regularly and maybe schedule some time to that end another source of stress is that a lot of people have to look after their kids now and maybe their kids are undergoing homeschooling and much of that relates to developing routines this of course is not an area of my expertise because kids are not on my radar yet <laughs> but that's worth mentioning and beyond some of those factors there are tried and tested ways of helping people who have insomnia so if we push those things aside so sleep hygiene then we can move on to some specifics. So one of these is to minimize napping during the day. And the reason that people should do so is that when people nap, they pay off the pressure to sleep that's accumulated so far that day during wakefulness. And what that means is that when they then try and fall asleep at night, there's less pressure to sleep. So they take longer to fall asleep their sleep tends to be less deep and therefore less consolidated too. And that would lead to increased likelihood of needing to wake up to pee. So try and minimize napping during the day. The one context in which if you're struggling to sleep, it makes sense to nap is if you're sleepy after shift work or something like that, and you need to travel home as a safety measure, you absolutely should take a nap. Just keep it to 10 minutes or so. Maybe just stick a, eye mask on and keep it short and then head home after that and, and try and sleep. So I think minimizing napping is a very important place to start. A very important principle is so-called stimulus control of behavior. And this doesn't just relate to sleep. The idea is that certain stimuli lead us to engage in certain behaviors because our brains are very good at creating associations between things. So for example, if you go into your kitchen during your contest prep and you find yourself rummaging through your fridge thinking, oh, I really want to eat something at the moment. It's because over time you've learned to associate your kitchen with eating. And in the same way, what happens during insomnia is people spend more and more time awake in bed. So their brains start to associate their beds with being awake and they need to recondition their brains to associate their beds 
with being asleep. And the way that they do that is first only going to bed when they're actually sleepy. So let's say that your planned bedtime is 10 p.m. If you're not sleepy at 10 p.m., then you shouldn't go to bed. You should only go to bed when you are sleepy. Next, if you wake up at night and you can't fall back to sleep within 15 to 20 minutes or so, you should get out of your bedroom, go somewhere else and do something relaxing in dim light. And what you do should be something that's unlikely to interfere with your sleep. So you can go through a simple exercise in which you list things that you might do. So for example, reading or watching TV series or meditating in dim lighting. And you can score those according to how much you'd like them and how likely they are to, to interfere with your sleep. And then pick those that you like that are unlikely to interfere with your sleep. And then otherwise, of course, you should only save your bed for sex and sleep only, and preferably only for sleep. So stimulus control of behavior is important too. And just as an aside, it's very relevant at the moment to exercise as well. And the reason I say that is that many of us have to do home workouts at the moment, which can be really difficult when you're not used to doing that. Because again, you've learned to associate being at home with certain behaviors, which probably aren't really exercise related. And one way around that is to save an area of your home just for exercise. So for example, in this room that I'm in now, which is basically functioning as my office at the moment, the area to my right at the moment, I use for stretching and for some body weight stuff. And I don't use it for anything else. So when I'm in that space, I'm learning to associate that space with exercise. I'm thereby removing the barriers to me doing that exercise, which I should be doing to maintain my metabolic health and my sanity. So stimulus control behavior is very important to lots of different health behaviors. So then another is stress regulation practices. And these can take many different guises. So at the moment, especially, I think a lot of people are very worried the future is unpredictable and that type of unpredictability is especially stressful. And for that reason, what can happen is during the day, if we're busy with work, for example, then we don't really have that much time to dwell on these problems that we face. But when we start to relax at night, especially when we go to bed, when our brains are no longer occupied with other things, those things that we've been concerned about, which have been suppressed by our daytime activities can bubble up to the surface. And if we then start worrying in bed, then that can interfere with our sleep. One way around this is to actually schedule worry time during the day. And I think the best time to do this is probably the sort of late biological afternoon, early biological evening, which for a lot of people is around the end of the working day. You don't want to do that too close to bed because if you're focusing on your deepest concerns at the moment near bedtime, then that might be stressful. So how would you go about that? You might set aside 15 minutes and list those things that you're concerned about. And you can also list your negative thoughts at this time, although you can over the course of the day list your negative thoughts. And if you're focusing on negative thoughts, then what you can do is you can basically keep a thought diary so note the negative thought note the evidence that supports whether that is true note the evidence that refutes whether that is true and then think about a way 
that you can approach that particular concern more adaptively. So try and reframe that thought in a more positive manner. So you can keep that type of thought diary during the day. And then around the end of the working day, you can schedule that worry time when you note your deepest concerns and you, you basically just put them to one side. And if you like, you can take the physical diary to your bedside at night and, and you can say to yourself, okay, I've done away with those. They're there. They're on the paper. I'm not worrying about that while I'm in bed. My work there is done. Otherwise, some other stress regulation practices include things like meditation, of course, which I think is especially useful at this moment in time. And I always recommend using Sam Harris's app, Waking Up, for that purpose. It's not sleep-specific, but it's very comprehensive. It has a lovely 50-day introductory course that people can do. And then if you go to the practice section of the app, then there are meditations by multiple practitioners now that focus on different things, one of which is love and kindness, which is basically trying to foster positive attitude and love and gratitude to all living beings, which again, I think at the moment when people are disposed to being unhappy is a really good thing to be doing. And if you are financially more stressed than normal at the moment, then my understanding is that you can email his team. And while normally you would pay to get access to the app, you can actually get access for free if you just explain that, hey, Sam, at the moment, I'm under the cosh a bit, so can I access this for free, please? So I'd recommend that. And I would generally have people do a meditation shortly after waking because they're more likely to do it at that time than they are later in the day. And we tend to have a little bit more control over our schedules early in the day. And a natural time to do that would be probably something like while your coffee or your tea is brewing in the morning. And also going back to the idea of keeping a sleep diary, pairing keeping a sleep diary with that time of day probably also makes a lot of sense. Pairing keeping a sleep diary with waiting for the kettle to boil, for example. So meditation, really useful, I think. And then... If we think about later in the day, then during the pre-bed period, it's important to try and do things to help you unwind. And music therapy is really helpful for that. If you take people who have insomnia and you have them listen to music, which they deem relaxing for 25 to 30 minutes, three to five times a week, perhaps, then most facets of their sleep tend to improve. And the type of music that you find relaxing will differ to the type of music that I find relaxing. But for a lot of people, it might be something like classical music. And I think listening to that in the two hours or so before bedtime is a pretty good thing to do. Otherwise, people can choose things that they find distracting if they feel that their minds are continually reverting to COVID-19 related thoughts. So, for example, we've got a 1,000-piece puzzle on the go at the moment, which we haven't been very good about getting to, but it's always an option if, if we want something to fill our time. And then otherwise, I think I've probably mentioned this before, but keeping a to-do list for the next day, again, using a physical diary and a pencil or a pen, can be very helpful for people who are trying to hold on in their minds to all the different things that they need to get done the next day 
It just helps offload it from the mind and thereby tends to help people fall asleep faster. And then if we go back to the idea of keeping a sleep diary, I suggest that people do that so that they understand how they're sleeping at the moment. And if you keep a sleep diary, then you can estimate how much time you're spending asleep each night at the moment. So let's say you've kept a sleep diary for a week and you find out, and we're just using numbers to make it easy here, that you're spending 10 hours in bed and only six hours of those are actual sleep. Then after a week of that type of insomnia, what you might want to do is only give yourself six hours in bed. So the amount of time in bed that you're actually asleep. And some people recommend adding half an hour to that. That really is up to you. But the reason you're doing that is basically to try and give yourself a sleep opportunity that corresponds to how much sleep you're actually getting. And you probably find initially that's really hard and you're quite sleepy during the day because during the first couple of nights, certainly your sleep will still not be that efficient. But what will happen is that during the daytime, you'll build lots of pressure to sleep because you're awake for a longer period of time each day, which will help consolidate your sleep at night. But then also, you should fix your wake time each day. So let's say that you've been going to bed at midnight and waking up at 10 a.m. or getting out of bed at 10 a.m. Then if you're giving yourself a six-hour sleep opportunity, then my suggestion would be to fix your wake time and go to bed in this instance at 4 a.m. and get out of bed at 10 a.m. So you're delaying your bedtime, but you're keeping your wake time the same. And by keeping your wake time the same, you're also helping to consolidate your circadian rhythms. You're helping to align them with the day. So you're improving the regularity of your sleep too. And then as time goes by, you'll continue to, tr you'll continue to track your sleep. And if your sleep efficiency, so the proportion of time that you're in bed, that you're actually asleep, stays at 50, 85% or higher, then you will slowly add a bit more time in bed each evening and give yourself a longer sleep opportunity. So after a week, you've been sleeping with 90% sleep efficiency. The next week, you might go to bed 15 minutes earlier. And then you would continue to repeat that process until you're getting enough time in bed for you to get complete sleep, but your sleep quality remains high too. So bedtime restriction, very helpful. And during that time, you'll probably end up waking to an alarm in the morning. Don't wake to the alarm on your phone. You shouldn't have your devices in your bedroom, of course. Instead, buy a physical alarm and preferably get one that emits red, emits red light. And if you find it hard to get out of bed in the morning because you're very sleepy and tired, then stick the alarm on the other side of the room to force you to get out of bed to turn it off. That might help. And also having something to look forward to the next morning might help you get out of bed too, even if that's just a cup of your favorite coffee or whatever it might be. So that would be another one. And then at the moment, of course, a lot of people were much more socially isolated than they previously would have been. And there's some evidence that social isolation will negatively affect sleep. Specifically, it tends to disturb sleep. It might not necessarily lead to shorter sleep. But if that's the case, then doing things to feel more integrated with the rest of society is likely a good thing. What are some of those things? 
scheduling time to speak to your friends on Skype. Interestingly, if you're struggling to exercise, for example, then scheduling workouts together online is great because you're getting a social interaction. You're accountable to your friends, which increase the likelihood of you doing that. And you're doing the exercise, which is going to positively affect your sleep. So it's really a three-pronged way of positively affecting your sleep. And then otherwise, I think if people are struggling with sleeping through the night, then there are lots of different techniques that they can use to help overcome that. So this is that period when you've just woken up at night, maybe you've gone to the toilet quickly, and it's not yet 15 to 20 minutes, the time when you should get out of bed and go to a different room, do something relaxing. What are some of the things that you can do to fall asleep more quickly? Maybe the most studied of those is progressive muscle relaxation, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, Stephen. I apologize if there's any overlap with our previous podcast, but just for the sake of completeness, I'll go through them. So progressive muscle relaxation is scanning through your body sequentially, tensing your muscles, holding the tension for perhaps six seconds or so, and then releasing the tension and feeling your muscles relax and feeling the heaviness of your body parts. And typically it would entail beginning with your toes and then working up through your calves, for example, and then your thighs and then your hips, and then maybe your abdomen, and then maybe your chest and back, then maybe your arms, and then your shoulders, and then your face ultimately. And that tends to help people fall asleep faster. It tends to help people fall asleep faster if they have racing minds too. So it's not just the physical discomfort thing. It can help with people who have overactive minds at night too. Another strategy that people can try is blocking thoughts. So it's common for people to have a mind which is a bit like a broken record and they might just think the same thing over and over again. And if that sounds familiar to you, then you can try something which is almost similar to counting sheep, which is basically just to repeat something over and over again in your mind. <clears throat> and one example of this that's been studied is just repeating the word the continuously, which is just as boring as it sounds. It helps some people, but I don't think it's the, the best way of going about helping those people. For some people, that might be the best strategy, and that's why I'm mentioning it. But if you try that and it doesn't seem to help too much, then you can use another form of distraction. And one thing that I find particularly helpful personally is an imagination exercise. So if, for example, you are in the midst of watching a TV series and you're halfway through it, and you're wondering what's going to happen in the next episode, then as you lie in bed, provided that this isn't too stimulating, you can begin to imagine what might happen and construct a narrative in your mind. And what that's doing is it's stopping you from lying there thinking, why can't I sleep? And that might help you fall asleep faster. Another strategy of circumventing that would be something called paradoxical intention. So, in people who have insomnia, they experience this kind of performance anxiety to sleep. They lie there and they try and fall asleep. And ironically, the more pressure you put on yourself to sleep, the less likely you are to sleep. 
paradoxical intention addresses that by having people do the opposite. So if you're in your dark room and it's quiet, then what you do is you would hold your eyes gently open and then as time goes by, just congratulate yourself for staying awake but relaxed. And people typically fall asleep relatively soon after doing that. So that's another strategy. And then one more would be visualization, which is just something that you want to practice during the day first. And all you're doing is going to your happy place in your mind's eye. So maybe you imagine yourself lying on the beach and you feel the sun on your body and the wind in your hair and you're lying next to a loved one and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. If you practice doing that during the day, then you can make that scene quite vivid and thereafter you can call on it at night when you're unable to sleep. And then finally, it's very important to support your general well-being at the moment. And I think a lot of people are probably less happy than they were previously, completely understandably. And I don't know a massive amount about the science of happiness, but one thing that I understand is the case is that people tend to become happier when they focus on others, when they orient themselves to others. So if you live with other people, then doing things to support their well-being is likely to help you be happy and healthy. And if you don't live with other people, then maybe you'll be focusing on friends and family who you can reach out to online. So I think that's important too. And then of course, people should be doing the social distancing <laughs> that all of us are constantly reminded about, but it's just so important to everybody's health and it's, it's in the best interests of all of us. So that, I think wraps up my stupidly long answer. But I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up on in there, Steve. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. Uh, it was a very good monologue. Uh, and. I would rec I will have to re-listen through it myself even because just along the way many thoughts came through my mind many things we've kind of touched upon but not in such a, a sequenced kind of manner uh, and from I think a listener's perspective it might sound a little bit overwhelming but from my own kind of having got a lot of these things in check for myself over time it just becomes almost like a bit routine, a bit habit for a lot of these things when you've got it in check and then maybe you have to revisit and you need to do the the sleep diary and things like that, which may be a little bit more cumbersome. Mm. But a lot of it is like just outsourcing the things and getting the things off your plate, which aren't maybe helping promoting good kind of structure, routine and sleep and then doing the things that do promote good, great sleep. And there are lots of things I think many of the listeners will hopefully be doing and maybe small things they can already start doing. And the, the thing that was kind of coming to my mind was it, out of everything you've maybe mentioned, is there anything you think stands out as the kind of best thing to begin with or uh, the thing that's maybe going to have the most powerful impact on someone? And I imagine your answer would be individualized to the person's specific issue maybe, but I don't know if there's anything that stands out to you there. Yeah, it would be person dependent, but I think if I was going to pick one or two things, then maybe the first of those would be the stimulus control. So only going to bed when you're sleepy, 
getting out of bed after 15 to 20 minutes and doing something relaxing in a different room, only returning to bed when you're sleepy, and then otherwise saving the bedroom for sex and sleep only. When I help people who have insomnia, that's almost always one of the things that we start with. And like you say, we don't start with all of this stuff. Of course we don't. Typically, it will be starting with two or three things. And often it will be stimulus control and then fixing wake-up time each day to ingrain that type of regularity. But at the moment, things might be a little bit different. And I think that if I was going to pick two things at the moment, then there'd probably be stimulus control and then some way of helping people mitigate excessive stress. And that really would be person dependent. But I think scheduling worry time is very useful for lots of people. And I think also it's crucial at the moment for people to do what they can to feel socially integrated. So doing exercise with friends over Zoom I think is, is a great thing to do because it improves sleep, it improves cardiometabolic health, it improves our social lives too. Because of its multifaceted nature, I see that as being a really positive thing. So it, going live on Instagram stories for my workout, does that count? I'm not sure it does quite count. <laughs> well, Social media is normally kind of uh, somewhat frowned upon for like health and well-being, isn't it? I guess um, in some ways. But now I don't know if that does check. I guess this is a whole opening a whole bag of something else to talk about. But that just came to my mind. I, I think that definitely fits in the category. And I think that there are good and bad ways to use social media. And for people like ourselves who are self-employed, I think it can be really useful. And the reason I say that is that if you are employed, then maybe you can offload onto your colleagues, for example, and you can use them for social support. Obviously, hopefully most of us can use our families and our friends. But otherwise, social media might be a useful avenue for that type of interaction, but it can also be a cesspool of negativity. I'm sure it's not for you, Steve. And as an aside, your Instagram is one of about three Instagrams that I really like. So keep it up. But yeah, I think, I think it's person-dependent. And I think a lot of the evidence indicates that social media especially when used at the wrong times is probably not a good thing for many health outcomes but there definitely is a way that it can be used to good effect and for things like accountability to engage in health behaviors it can be great so i'd say crack on with that awesome yeah i know uh some of I coach quite a lot of personal trainers and they're getting into the virtual PT side where they literally are taking their clients through like Zoom PT sessions. And like you've mentioned here, I, I can see it. Like, I mean, that's why people a lot of the time are personal trainers. It's not just for the making them accountable to do their exercise, but it's that interaction with someone who really cares for them. And there's a there's more to be said to that than I think people realize sometimes. Yeah. And then on the note of, you mentioned uh, kind of keeping a a diary uh, for sleep and that was like your first port of call and I think a lot of people 
I don't know, nowadays we're getting more and more kind of wearable trackers. And this is something I wanted to talk about with you in terms of like the Apple Watch, even you've got apps on your phone, you can put them under your pillow, which I don't know if that would be frowned upon. It looks like it might be, or like my Fitbit tries to give me some information, or we've got like the Aura Ring, which seems a little bit more advanced. And it was interesting to me that maybe your first port call wasn't thinking like, oh yeah, just outsource it to these wearable technologies. Let's just use a, a diary to track these elements. Um, I don't know if kind of there's anything you use or recommend or what your general thoughts are on these wearable trackers at the moment. Yeah, I generally start with sleep diaries, especially with people who have sleep issues. And just as an aside, one thing that concerns me is when there are people whose sleep is fine who become fascinated by trying to enhance their sleep. And then they start tracking it meticulously and over-focusing on it. And ironically, that can actually lead their sleep to deteriorate over time. So if your sleep is good, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. You should just, <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing. Switch it off now. <laughs> it's, it's all good. You don't need to try and optimize everything in your life. But with that said, I think that these devices can be useful but also I don't tend to use them to analyze people's sleep. So let me just expand on that. I say that I think they're useful and the reason for that is largely related to physical activity. So if you look, for example, at what happens when you take people and you give them activity monitors, be they wrist warm ones like Fitbits or Apple watches or smart rings like the aura, then they tend to move around a bit more during the day. They're getting that type of feedback on their physical activity that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And right now, that's really useful because if you look, for example, at global Fitbit data, since the pandemic led to some of the measures that are in place that relate to things like social distancing, then people in countries like England are probably something like 30% less physically active than they previously were going by their step counts. And the great thing about these devices is that they increase the salience of those behaviors and they can thereby help you avoid that happening or minimize the degree to which that happens. So I think in terms of physical activity and therefore general well-being and various aspects of health, they're really useful. I think for certain measures that relate to how well rested we are, they give quite useful data. So this depends on the specific device, but I think in general, they give okay estimates of resting pulse rate. I say pulse rate because they don't measure heart rate over the heart itself. They measure the pulse at the wrist or at the finger respectively. So those data can definitely be useful and they tend to move in accordance with pulse rate variability as well. So the lower your resting pulse rate, the higher your pulse rate variability will tend to be. And for that reason, measures of pulse rate variability often don't add that much to measures of resting pulse rate by itself. So I think just assessing how your resting pulse rate is changing over time can tell you a fair bit in general. If it's low or if it's going down, that's probably a good thing. That's not always the case. But as a rule of thumb, it often is. And then regarding sleep, they typically give good estimates of sleep duration. 
not perfect ones. It's really hard to say how well these things estimate sleep. And one of the reasons for that is that these manufacturers are constantly changing their algorithms and whatnot. Not constantly, but relatively frequently. And at a rate at which manuf at a rate at which scientists can't necessarily keep up with those changes. So maybe, for example, a new publication comes out assessing the validity of a specific activity monitor against some gold standard such as PSG. By the time that paper's published, it is probably irrelevant because the manufacturer of the device has probably already changed the, the algorithms that are used. And as a, another comment, the hardware itself that's used in these devices is often not that different between the devices. So whether Fitbit is better than Apple or Garmin or whomever, it's probably largely dependent on the quality of the algorithms that are running on the hardware. So anyway, I think it's hard to tell how well they assess sleep, but we do have some data and in general, so far, they don't seem to do a very good job of sleep staging, but there is some data suggesting that they're getting better at that. Interestingly, for example, the new Whoop band has recently been assessed by University of Arizona researchers. And they found that compared to PSG, it produced quite good estimates of both slow wave sleep and REM sleep. So I think they're going in the right direction. But even if they gave good assessments of different sleep stages, what would you do with those data? Personally, mm. as someone who studies sleep a fair bit, I would do nothing with those data. I'm most interested in the duration of my sleep, the regularity of my sleep, how well I feel I sleep, my subjective sleep quality. I don't, I don't care if I'm getting 18% slow wave sleep versus 22% slow wave sleep. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's terribly meaningful data. So I wouldn't be too concerned about those data if you're a consumer using those devices. And then regarding the devices themselves, if you think about this in terms of price, then I suppose that the Apple Watches are probably about the most expensive of the widely used devices. They seem to give quite good heart rate, pulse rate data, and quite good activity data compared to most devices for sleep. Their battery life is so bad that people generally don't use them at night. And right. I can't remember, but I think the latest ones might be used to assess sleep if people want to do so. But personally, I, I don't really want to have something on my wrist, which is effectively a laptop. Like I, I have other concerns about that. So that, that wouldn't be my personal choice, but the device themselves seem to be quite good for activity and pulse rate. Regarding the Aura Ring, I think it has some different characteristics that work in its favor. So one is that the form factor is such that people tend to forget that they're wearing, which is a really good thing. People keep them on. Whereas with wristborne devices, after a while, they might find it annoying to sleep with one on and they therefore take it off. So Aura tend to be quite good for longitudinal monitoring of sleep and readiness. And they also sample data at quite high frequencies. And because of the fit of the rings, my guess is that they give quite good pulse rate and pulse rate variability measurements. But 
I don't recall if they take those during the daytime. I don't think they do. I think it's just during the sleep period. Or to rephrase that, my understanding is that they collect data around the clock, but they only analyze the data during the sleep period for battery reasons. And I think that because they're finger-worn as opposed to wrist-worn, they tend to probably give slightly worse estimates of physical activity. So for me, as somebody who is interested in using these things to make sure that I stay physically active, I'm, I'm not sure that that would be my choice, but they're massively popular. I think if you're interested in your readiness, then they're probably quite a good option. And if you want something that is sleek and that you'll keep on, then they're also a really good option. And then you have the Whoops of the world. Whoop have quite a different model because it's a subscription model. I haven't spent any time interacting with the new device. I've heard a lot of good, good things about it. And I know that it has a lot of functionality that other devices don't yet seem to have. And I think they've taken a step in the right direction that, for example, they seem to collect a fair bit of data related to lifestyle and then give suggestions for interventions based on those data. Very cool. And then obviously there's that University of Arizona study which suggests that they're quite accurate at assessing what they purport to assess. Also good. For someone like you, Steve, who is primarily doing strength and power exercise when you're not nominated to run 5Ks, <laughs> impressively quickly, by the way, <laughs> For someone like you who's doing primarily strength and power exercise, they, they give strain ratings, which is basically the device's assessment of your RPE during a given training unit. And those data are largely based on pulse rate measures. And because max efforts in even multi-joint lifts won't necessarily cause you to approach the upper ranges of your heart rate reserve. If you're doing a strength of power session, then you probably won't rate the strain of that session being that high, even though you might feel completely crippled by it. So I think that their strain estimates for that type of exercise probably aren't that good. But I think that people can also record their rating of perceived exertion using the devices too, or using the app that accompanies it which is a good thing. So for you, they, they might well be quite a good option, but they are quite expensive. And then you finally have the sort of Garmin's and Fitbits of the world. Personally, I use a Fitbit. I think their physical activity estimates are pretty good. They're not overly expensive. I think that the designs are relatively attractive and they give okay estimates of resting pulse rate. So for me, they, they give me everything that I like to have garmin i think are probably much the same garmin devices are quite durable and some of their devices have monstrous battery lives so i think they're great for the explorers of the world who want to go on these long expeditions and don't want to faff around charging their devices frequently so all of them have pros and cons i wouldn't use any of them as a first port of call for assessing sleep necessarily but because some of them do so in the background, I think that can be a nice feature. I think that their sleep assessments are improving over time, which is great. And then for general readiness, as, as assessed by things like pulse rate and pulse rate variability, I think they have some utility too. 
Fantastic. No, really comprehensive answer and helpful, I think, because uh, it's really interesting hearing someone talk about these devices that are giving information about sleep and saying that maybe that's not what you'd be using the device for as someone who does help people with their sleep, uh, which I think is, yeah, I mean, at the moment, at least, and they may be improving on that and that may come in, may come in future. And I guess from listening to you there in terms of recommendations, I guess, for our listener who you can base off basically me as a bit of a model, I guess, is that any of these that you would say like you'd recommend over the other um, taking price, say out of it, say that's not something that someone has to be concerned about if they wanted to get the most from it, because I think a lot of the time. I don't know, I, I do this at, at least where I would look at something like the Aura Ring and know we've chatted about it a little bit before where I'm like, oh, this is giving me more data. That must be better. Whereas uh, you kind of talked to me a bit more rationally and said about what data was necessary for me and what would be helpful. And like you said, sometimes more is less. And it, like people who have good sleep listening to this may end up not having better sleep after listening to this, which just doesn't really make sense in uh, in someone's head, but it does make sense in practice. So yeah, I won't blab anymore. What, if you were recommending one, what do you think for a lot of the listeners they maybe would look to? Yeah, as I suggested, I would probably choose a different device depending on what I wanted from it. And I don't want to suggest that one is better than the other necessarily. For me personally, given that my interests are tracking physical activity, not having something on my wrist, which is basically a laptop, tracking resting pulse rate and possibly occasionally looking at sleep, but probably not really using it for that. I don't personally use mine for sleep at all, actually. I, I would probably gravitate to the Whoops or the Fitbits or the Garmin's of the world. But if I was somebody who was most interested in assessing readiness and just wanted something that was really convenient that I would keep on and having tried previously different wrist-worn devices and found them annoying, I would gravitate to a smart ring such as Nora. And then Apple Watches, if, if people want that type of technology, then obviously they're very sophisticated. So they, they definitely have some huge pros too. I just, I just don't personally want that type of distraction or Wi-Fi device strapped to me the whole time. So... If anything, it would probably be something like a Whoop or a Fitbit or a Garmin. And I, I don't really have any specific devices that I would recommend. I think that if you look at the Fitbit ranges, for example, then the cheaper devices probably aren't much worse for assessing those things than the better devices. Yeah. Same probably goes for Garmin. The difference really is the functionality and the battery life. And then Whoop, there's just one Whoop. So that makes picking a Whoop easier awesome no fantastic greg i think that is um yeah a really comprehensive and helpful answer for a lot of listeners i personally have had this charge too for like four years or something it's still going okay and like you said it it gives me what i require from it and want from it um, and that is mostly the things you mentioned monitoring i try not to get too obsessive about looking at all the different stages and things and at the moment like you said it's not necessarily completely valid for us so greg fantastic chat as always um and thank you again i should have said actually at the start thank you for the the 5k nomination my like feet and uh adductors are not thanking you right now but <laughs> it was fun to try running again <laughs> you must have pushed it pretty hard so so i think that you posted you ran in 
in just under 21 minutes, which for someone who doesn't do any running is exceptionally impressive. <laughs> I used to run a lot, but uh, yeah, I haven't run properly for over five years. I just, when I saw you ch uh, challenge me to it, the kind of ego came out and I was like, I've got to try and do my best on this. If I, I actually didn't see what time I was doing, if I'd saw the time I was getting, I might've tried to push for under 20 minutes, which probably would have destroyed me even more. You, you did assess it using a device. So maybe, maybe the device was just massively inaccurate. It was actually a 2K run. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully it wasn't. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm kind of like, do I want to be good at running anyway? Cause it's not really, uh, doesn't really compliment my, my sport at the moment. No, but for, for someone who is by no means scrawny such as yourself, Steve, it's, it's very impressive. I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we can leave this here. Um, if people want to get anything more from you, Greg, have you, uh, got anything coming or any, uh, resources people should head towards differently from before? No, I don't think so. Not really. So usual social media handles at Greg Potter, PhD on Instagram and Twitter. LinkedIn extension is the same. I'm on ResearchGate, but I'm not really publishing much research anymore. So feel free to reach out to me through either of those. I also have a website, gregpotterphd.com, which even though it's very young, still needs overhauling. I just don't have time at the moment to, to put much effort into that. So that exists, but I wouldn't necessarily point people towards it. But if you want to reach out to me, then, then please do feel free to, to ping me a a direct message on Instagram or whatever, and I'll, I'll do my best to get back to you. Fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below as well. And another massive thank you to Greg and thank you all for listening. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.